It's Ginger Avery, CEO of Allergy, with Ex Parte Communications' next podcast. Today, we're going to highlight one of our partner firms, Cunningham Bounds from Mobile. Can you believe that the firm of Cunningham Bounds has had seven past presidents of this organization? As a matter of fact, it's not just a partner firm since we started this program. It's a founding firm going back nearly 70 years in our history. And oh, by the way, there's another officer in the rotation, Lucy Tufts. So they'll soon have eight. Thanks again, Cunningham Bounds. If you have a chance, please drop them a line or give them a call. Or next time you see them, give them a little hug and say thanks for being part of helping us protect justice in Alabama. Parte Communications podcast, the official podcast of the Alabama Association for Justice, a podcast for Alabama trial lawyers, about Alabama trial lawyers, by Alabama trial lawyers. I am your good friend and host, Gavin King. I practice law down at Beasley Allen in Montgomery, Alabama, and I am happy to be joined by a friend, mentor, and former professor of mine, uh, Sarah Williams. We are in her office uh, in Birmingham. Alabama at Alexander Shannara Trial Attorneys, where she uh, practices law. Sarah, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, we'll let the listeners in a little bit. You um, were one of my trial coaches when I was in law school, uh, and I, I told you after I tried my first lawsuit that I sat there, I stood there taking witnesses, crossing witnesses, thinking, would Sarah be pleased with this? <laughs> Which was uh, WWSD. Yeah, what would Sarah do? <laughs> um, which we had a good outcome in that case, uh, and so I'm, I'm thankful that I was thinking that uh, throughout my my first opportunity to try jury trial. But uh, you have had an outsized impact on my young law practice, so Aww. I'm thankful to be sitting here uh, with somebody who, in my view, is a legend in our practice. Well, thank you. I'll write you about my cut of that. Uh, fee later. Sir, <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't you begin by telling our listeners, uh, those who may know you, those who may not, a little bit about yourself, uh, your practice, and some of the things that you're most passionate about. Yeah, so I am a 2006 graduate of Cumberland School of Law. I graduated undergrad from Florida State. Um, started my practice at what was Gaines, Walter, and Kenny in 2006 and spent seven years on um, the dark side. Mm. And then in 2013, Alex recruited um, me and some of my partners from there, um, as most folks know. And so I joined Alex's firm almost 10 years ago now. And so it's been a great run since then. I handled um, primarily, you know, I did a stint, as so many of us have done, I did a stint at Car Allison, uh, where I did primarily trucking. And so I tried to focus my docket on trucking cases, catastrophic injury cases, wrongful death cases. Um, but, you know, as, as most of us know who are trying to make a living, you end up with kind of a mixed bag of, of, of personal injury cases. I spent three years from 2017 to the end of 2020 uh, managing our firm while we grew to um, over 
500 lawyer and staff individuals and, and offices in nine states and uh, then decided that I missed being a trial lawyer and decided to hang up my management hat and come back to the litigation hat side of things. So that's what I've been doing for the past couple of years. You know, it's funny. I think about when I was trying to decide where I was going to go to work, I called a lot of people and I was making a decision between a plaintiff firm and a defense firm, and everybody gave me a really political answer. <laughs> uh, you've, got, there's, you've got no wrong options. Those are both great choices. Until I called you. Uh, and you were emphatic uh, about becoming a plaintiff's lawyer, uh, and obviously I listened. So why did you become a trial lawyer? It's, a, it's an interesting question. So I, I feel like my path is, is different because most people don't know that I'm an introvert. I realized when I did the Williams competition at Cumberland that like this was my thing because I had no idea when I went to law school like, I went to law school and I knew I didn't want to be poor that was it <laughs> that's all I knew it's like you know I grew up poor I didn't want to be poor that was that was it for me and I was you know I was determined to just like find a good job and and make decent money and complete my my mash you know having a house and a husband and kids um, and then I did the Williams and I was like, oh, like I can do this thing, you know, and, and it combined all the things that I love about just life in general of helping people and telling stories and um, convincing, you know, people and, and making arguments. And so I love the idea of trial advocacy and and my opportunities out of law school were either criminal or civil defense um, because back then plaintiff's firms weren't hiring in the numbers that they hire now sure. right um and so all i knew is i wanted to try cases and i knew i didn't feel comfortable putting people in jail and so Gaines was at that time really the place where if you wanted to try a lot of cases quickly you went sure. um and and so when i switched though like my heart was never like, I was never a believer, you know? Like, now I'll, I'll talk to adjusters now, and I'll be like, dude, you know this money's not coming from your region's account. Like, I always, I was always like, look, we're either going to resolve this case or I'm going to try it, but if I try it, I got to beat you because you're going to make me waste my weekend, you know, <laughs> when we could resolve this case. Um, but my heart was, was never there. And then I tried a case with Rad. It was a drowning case that we won, but it didn't feel good. And at that moment, I knew, like, I can't keep doing this. Like, when something feels wrong in your soul. Um, and then it just so happened that Alex hired, had hired Brandon Bishop, and Brandon called me. And it was just like everything kind of fell into place at the right time. Um, and I haven't looked back since. I'm glad you hadn't looked back. All right. Yeah. Um, when I think about you, Sarah, I think about a lot of things. But one of the things that comes to mind um, most is the word authenticity. Um, over the years, I've heard you encourage so many aspiring trial lawyers, including me, to be more authentic. Um, I can recall a time in your class where I thought I did a fantastic cross-examination, um, only to look at you, who is uh, Pete, 
looked extremely disappointed in me, and he just looked at me and said, that's not you. Uh, why are you so passionate about that? I think the thing that lawyers get wrong is that being a lawyer is like a personality trait. And so I feel like so many of us are striving to be something other than what we are because, you know, we've been told, like, this is what a lawyer dresses like and this is what a lawyer sounds like and this is how a lawyer behaves. And so the one first reason I'm passionate about it is because I truly believe that so many of the mental health issues that lawyers have is because we spend so much time trying to be something other than we are, trying to, you know, reach this pinnacle of, being a lawyer in air quotes when like that's not what our clients need like our clients that's our profession right like we are the mechanism through which our clients find justice but what they need is for us to to understand their perspective and they need us to be mothers and daughters and aunts and uncles and you know sisters like they need us to be human beings so that we can view their their harm from a perspective of a human being that it's occurred to so that we can adequately tell their stories to these juries. And I don't think that you can be the right storyteller for your client if you are thinking about their case and their injuries as a lawyer and not authentically. And no one is authentically a lawyer, right? Like being a lawyer is not a personality trait. We've just convinced ourselves <laughs> that it is. And so, and I also think that like this idea of like what a trial lawyer is supposed to be keeps a lot of people who would be really good mm -hmm. at this thing that our clients need to be advocating on their behalf out of courtrooms because they think they can't do it because they think they have to be whatever it is that, you know, people have held out to be as, as the gold standard for a trial lawyer. They think they can't be that. Right. And so they don't even pursue it. And I think that the people that we represent are missing out on the opportunity be, to be represented by amazing potential trial lawyers because we are so caught up in instead of taking ourselves, which is what we do, right? What we teach at Cumberland, taking who you are and then giving you the skills to use that to advocate for your clients. Um, the other reason I'm passionate about it is because I think that one of the reasons why people don't trust lawyers is because we give off an air of untrustworthiness because we are trying to be something else. Mm. And people, and I, I just, I think juries, people don't give them enough credit. I think that juries can sniff out a fake voice and a fake personality and a fake persona like faster than a drug dog can sniff out cocaine. I just, and, and, I, and the people we represent and the people that we are um, presenting these cases to deserve to be not just presented with the truth in regards to the cases we're handling, but they don't deserve to be lied to about who you are. I remember trying a case when I was a defense lawyer and the plaintiff's lawyer like faked a Southern accent mm. and a jury knew it. And, and it's, it puts up an unnecessary um, block and an unnecessary fence between you and that person. How can they trust what we're saying about our case if they can tell that you're not even being yourself? Um, 
And, and so I think that those are the two most important things that you have to be true to you, but then the people that we represent and the people that we are um, presenting these cases to deserve the truth. They deserve to be presented with who you really are. And, and I just, I, I don't think we do our clients any, we do them a disservice when we try cases as anyone other than ourselves. That's fantastic. I've so many things I've thought about when you were, you were saying that. But one of the ones that comes to mind is one of my mentors at Beasley Island, Cole Portis, um, tells a story about how he, he realized early in his career that he couldn't try cases like Jerry Beasley. Uh, and I'm fortunate enough at our firm to get to work with our clerks. And one of the things that I always tell them is don't try to be me, don't try to be Greg Allen, don't try to be LeBaron Boone, whoever. We've already got them here. Right. They worked here already. Right. What we don't have potentially is you. That's and right. You being you, and we're not going to get to know who you are if you're too busy trying to be Gavin or somebody else who works here. Right. Everyone has their own superpower, and everyone, and and the thing is, juries are made up of people, and so, like, there may be something about your personality that actually triggers someone to um, want to listen to you, right, and and to be more apt to trust you. Um, because of who you really are but you know when you're trying to be and especially I mean you know I remember being at Cumberland and, and you remember they sh I don't know if they still did this when you started but they show you um to kill a mockingbird and then they talk about Atticus Finch and I was like ah I can't be an old white dude in a three-piece suit like I didn't like that. I'll never. I will never be that. Like if that is like the gold standard for what a lawyer is, I will never be that. Right. And so, so many of us. They did not do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. So many of us are first generation lawyers, and yeah. we don't have someone to look to, and we shouldn't be looking at anyone. But I think, I think we 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 try to find examples of like what we should be like versus. Um, looking to folks and saying, okay, I want that skill set. Like, like Andrew Moke at our firm is a cross-examination ninja. And like he's, and I would, I love, like I, lo I love to watch him and pick up on how he approaches cases, but we are obviously two different people personality-wise. And so I think people conflate that. They conflate wanting to emulate how you perform a skill with your like being like you, right? Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things that I always talk about in our trial program, we'll talk about that in our trial world in a moment. Um, but I think the thing I heard over and over at Cumberland is, yes, you're going to learn different skills, but we want to find a way to make you the best you that you can be, not the best somebody else. Right. And there are a set of skills that we all need to be able to pull out of our toolbox, um, but we're going to use them differently just like artisans who make similar products are going to use tools differently. Right. Well, and then, you know, you've got so much to think about when you're trying a case. Like, you know, do I need to respond to, to what the other side said? Is there an objection? Is the jury, you know, how are they responding to, you know, this aspect of the case we're presenting? And if you are also having to think about, okay, how does my voice, how, how you know, let me put on my, you know, neutral voice and sound different and, and I've got to keep this persona like that's taking up valuable real estate in your brain that you really need um, to be handling something else. So if you can let go of that one thing and just be yourself like it frees up so much of um, 
your ability to think about all the other things that are much more important, yeah. you know? Yeah, and one of the things I think about too, my trial partner, uh, one of my trial partners is a guy who just couldn't be more unreasonable. They were so different. And what I realized, and, and admittedly, when I started working on trying this case with him, it kind of frustrated me that he wasn't more like me. And it probably frustrated him, frankly, that I wasn't more like him. But I think what we both learned by the time this process was over and the verdict came back, um, we needed those things about each other in this, and especially in that case. And we were able to navigate some things. And there were things that he was able to do better than me. There was things that he was able to communicate better than me. And there were things um, that I was able to communicate better than him. He's a much more mild-mannered, kinder person than me. And so there were things that needed to be handled more delicately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were some cross-examinations where somebody needed to be angry. Uh, that was a little more my speed. And I think if we're so caught up trying to be like everybody else, sometimes you miss out on the beauty that's in our diversity. That's right. Um, we've talked a little bit about mock trial already, uh, but you devote a lot of time, effort, and energy to coaching mock trial teams at our alma mater, uh, the Cumberland School of Law at Sanford. Uh, and I know that you do that ultimately to pour into the next generation of, of trial lawyers, which, again, I'm a benefactor of. But what about coaching mock trial do you think makes you, Sarah, a better trial lawyer? One of the big benefits is obviously you have to stay fresh, right? So your evidentiary foundations and, you know, the rules and the hearsay exceptions, like you're constantly going over and over and over them. Um, Because, you know, you get to a certain point, you could go a year or so without trying a case um, or things have changed. You know, the, the patterns have changed, the, the rules have changed. Um, so that is obviously the practical aspect that helps me. But I also think like my students make me a better person. And, and I have evolved even in terms of coaching before I had Malone and before I became a mother, like I was um, pretty rigid and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well, like my students before, before you, like I struck a lot of fear in in people. I, I know, but I think now, like I have learned how to, be firm, but be mm-hmm. compassionate. Sure. And so, you know, my students, that was my first real opportunity at mothering. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the folks I mothered before I mothered Malone. And, and so in terms of being able to deal with adversity and deal with giving criticism um, and from a perspective of both, um, you know, Brene Brown always says clear as kind but there, being clear does not, you don't have to be mean to be yeah. clear. And, and, and so I think that my students have helped me develop, you know, my ability to be more empathetic and my ability to be a better and more well-rounded person. Um, and I get to, you know, Cumberland was, some, was somewhat of a culture shock for me coming from Florida State, 
which is fairly diverse, you know. Sure. And so then I got to Cumberland. It's like, ugh. But I have just learned, like, so many of the problems that I think we think we only have as, like, black lawyers or women lawyers in terms of imposter syndrome and in mm. terms of dealing with, you know, issues about who we are and authenticity. I, I've really learned that we all deal with those issues. And so it's been such a great um, opportunity for me to realize that as people, most of us are the same. And if we focus on, you know, where we have similarities versus differences, like I just have had such an opportunity to get to know students from so many different backgrounds that it has enriched my life and my perspective just on humanity. You've been busy, uh, aside from <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, aside from your work here at the firm, your work at Cumberland, um, your work as a, a wife and a mother, and I'm sure uh, other things that you have going on, trying to maintain a, a, a social life and friends. Um, with all that, you found some time to write a book. It seems. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that project, how it came to be, and where folks can find it, and what should it, they should expect to find in uh, <laughs> this project that you've undertaken since you have so much time. Yeah, yeah. My editor's like, what's up with those revisions? Um, <laughs> so I, one of the reasons why I decided to step away from managing the firm is because one of the things that during the during that time period in managing the firm, I started like our women's initiative here with Heidi DiLorenzo um, and just got really passionate Another about <laughs> the best. <laughs> um, just got really passionate about women's issues. Like the thing that frustrates me the most is be at being a professor is I would have and still have so many talented women who come through our program and then they go to these firms and are either underutilized mm -hmm. or disappear after a couple of years. And so it's just like, what is happening? You know, and so I continue to mentor a lot of my former students. And I just saw that a lot of the problems were the same. And then I started traveling. You know, Alex and I traveled a lot while I was managing the firm. And then talking to other women lawyers, like there weren't there were so many rooms that I was in and tables I was sitting at where I was the only woman. And so I thought to myself, like, I, my purpose in this world cannot be, you know, fussing at lawyers for not filing cases or, or getting their, <laughs> their case, their settlement submitted, um, you know, and, and talking to angry clients. Like, I just, I felt deep in my heart that, um, as a woman who rose to the ranks of, of managing a firm, that it is important to, to talk to women about, you know, the things that, there are a lot of things you can't change, right? Like we can't change how people think about us, but, or, or you can't change certain people's attitudes, but you can figure out and strategize on what's best for you. And I just don't think there are enough women who are visible and vocal about how to be successful in this career and how to navigate um, some of the pitfalls so that you, you are around. Because I think when you see, like the thing that was so important for us at our firm was 
when we started talking about issues and normalizing them, it helped us provide stability. Like, you know, you're not alone, but I don't, I think so many women feel like women lawyers feel like they are alone. Um, so I started a, um, thought leadership, digital thought leadership campaign and started filming videos. And then that kind of fantastic for anybody who hasn't seen it. Thank you. And so then that kind of um, segued into folks suggesting, you know, maybe you write a book that deals with similar issues. And so Feminine and Formidable mm. coming sometime in 2023, <laughs> as soon as I can uh, get through both my trial calendar and these revisions. I'm hoping, um, my plan was to publish in January, but I've got, I'm in trial every week in February and half of March. And so that just doesn't work for me. So probably mid-March or April. Um, but it deals with essentially identifying where in our early ages these self-limiting beliefs were formed and how you can root those out and, and, and let go of thinking that something is wrong with you versus understanding that you've been socialized to think a certain way about yourself and how to identify that, root it out, and then um, strategic steps in, in terms of identifying mentors and sponsors and how men can help the women yeah. in their firms or in their businesses um, develop a path towards success, how women can help women. Um, and so it's essentially dealing, expanding on the thought leadership videos that I've been doing. Gonna read it for a few reasons, but as a daddy to a little girl, um, who our little girl, I think sometimes just kind of even at a young age, you see can struggle with confidence, and um, yeah, I want to help father her well and shepherd her well, and uh, I'm looking forward to. I'm always looking for resources of how I can encourage her to be herself even more and to be even more bold and confident in who she is. It is a struggle, um, man. I, like I want. Malone to, to, I tried not to undermine her confidence and I want her to have a voice, um, but gentle parenting, which so many of us were not parented sure. that way, right? Sure. Um, but I, I truly believe that it is more important for her to be comfortable having a voice in learning boundaries, learning when to fight her battles, learning how to respectfully fight those battles. Um, you know, than it is for her to follow my rules. And so we talk, the book discusses um, really um, the, the, a lot of the evidence that like little, like we're all born, you know, folks will say women are just innately less confident, but I just, it's just not true. Um, any, if you have children, you see them as little kids being yeah. confident. And then that confident is confidence is slowly eroded. And so how can we, develop the skills to um, stop that erosion in our own girls. Um, but then how can we forgive ourselves as women for um, letting the beliefs of others, you know, overtake our own and, and our own self-worth and how can we claim our self-worth and, and then utilize that to make affirmative decisions about what environments are good for us and where we can be successful. That's good. One of the things I tell myself all the time and tell my, my wife and my daughter all the time, not to believe the lies, you know, just always remember the things that are true about you and about, about the world and, and, and throw out all the, the lies That's that the right. world tries to tell you about yourself. Um, 
This has been a great conversation so far. We're going to take a break right here to hear a message from our friends at the Alabama Association for Justice. Today, we're going to highlight another one of our fellows, Veritex, formerly known as Freedom. As a matter of fact, Mickey Turner, along with her late husband, Mike Turner, were one of the original fellows in our organization. Wow, what support. So next time you need something, please think of Veritex and give Mickey a call. We're back with Sarah. We're, she's joining us for our uh, my favorite segment of the show, the segment we call The War Room. We ask all of our guests to come armed with their best war story as a trial, as a trial lawyer. Uh, so I'll invite all of our listener, listeners to join us in the war room, and I'll sit back and hear from Sarah. So, <laughs> you know, everyone thinks, like, for some reason that we're just, like, rolling in, like, catastrophic and death cases. The first trial I tried when I was at Shannara, and I will say this gave me a brief moment of, did I make the right decision? <laughs> I went, I, 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 you know, just started, and David Graves had this case uh, down in Macon County, and he was like, hey, you, you know, you want to try this case with me? And I was like, sure, you know, I don't have anything to do. I'll go down and try this case. Didn't really know much about it, but I was like, I'll, you know, strike the jury with you and just come down. So I'm down there, and we've got two, two clients, and one was amazing, and then she had her boyfriend there. Um... And he was, a, he was a nice guy, but he um, could not go through the week without, um, like his afternoon activity was to partake mm. in, a, in, a, in a good beverage. And so having to spend you know, all day in the courthouse was just killing him. And so we, we got through, we got through, through two days of trial, it was like a three and a half day trial. And on the third day, um, and he got through his testimony. The third day, we get through we get through all the testimony, and we are going to close in the afternoon. And we come back after lunch, and he doesn't come back. <laughs> and so judge is gonna throw his case out. Judge is mad with us, and so we track him down. He comes. We track him down, and he's like, I'm going to come back. And so then we don't hear anything, and we're sitting there. And all of a sudden, so I'll go to the restroom, and I hear, like, a huge commotion um, downstairs. So I go running downstairs to the front, and um, <laughs> the sheriffs are about, the, the security, they're about to arrest somebody, and it was our client for drunken disorderly conduct. <laughs> So, you know, sometimes a win is not always a verdict. Sometimes a win is keeping your client from being arrested at the courthouse. <laughs> Even though they get DV'd, they at least do not have a conviction for drunk and disorderly conduct. But I remember driving back home that day and thinking to myself, self? Like, is... This never happened when you were at games. <laughs> it's like, hey, did Alex, was Alex being truthful about the types of cases you were going to be working on? And it, it has turned out fine. But that was the one day where I was like, 
huh, what have I gotten myself into? Um, so that was that was a fun one. That is hilarious. Uh, Sarah, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Thank you for um, having me. And I can't thank you enough for just what you've meant to me as a young trial lawyer. Uh, and I'm certainly, um, I may not be much of a trial lawyer, but whatever I am in a lot of ways, I am because of some of uh, the things that you've imparted into me. So I'm really thankful on a personal level. Um, and Only the good things. I won't take credit for <laughs> any of the bad things. That's on you, Beasley. <laughs> uh, well, with that being said, thank you so, so much for joining us uh, on the Ex Parte Communications Podcast, the official podcast of the Alabama Association for Justice, uh, a podcast for Alabama trial lawyers, about Alabama trial lawyers, by Alabama trial lawyers. I've been your good friend and host, Gavin King from Beasley Island in Montgomery. And until next time, y'all go get some justice. Mm -hmm.